Hello. Welcome to Women in the Word. Also want to say welcome to all the women at West Campus who are joining us as well as we study through Genesis. I hope that all of you are enjoying Genesis as much as I am. You know, my name is Vanita Jones, and I'm part of the teaching team, and I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, she's the one that drew the short straw. <laughs> That's me. You're thinking, why on earth would you choose to, to teach Genesis 38? I was kind of thinking the same thing as well. But you know, when I look through my spring and my dates, I have another senior in the house, and I only had a few dates that actually worked to teach. And so I chose this one way before I knew what was going to actually be taught today. But God in his mercy showed me some things that I think all of you are going to love as much as I did. You know, this is not the first time that I've studied this amazing book. You know, at first I read the Genesis, I read Genesis way back in elementary school when I was at the Bethlehem Lutheran School and there were just three of us in my grade. It was Vanita, Angie, and Troy. And for six years, we were the only three in my grade. But we studied the Bible from one end to the other. And I loved Genesis way back then. We did felt board presentations. We did coloring pages. We did reactments. We, at, we did dramatic interpretations. We did everything from Genesis. It was wonderful. And I've participated in studies of Genesis throughout the years. But you know what I've learned is that these aren't just a, a, a bunch of stories. Every time I read it, I find something different in each story that I can take at that moment and realize maybe there's an area of my life I'm not quite glorifying God. Now, while Genesis 39 and 40 are stories of Joseph and his great faithfulness, you know, Genesis 38 is filled to the brim with wickedness, depravity, immorality. It's icky. It's a rough chapter to study, let alone read. And, and, and most commentaries, I'll be honest with you, skip right over it. And the ones that did, they gave me about three pages. Now, I'm pretty sure I know what else you're thinking, because it's exactly what I was thinking when I started Genesis 38. Why is this chapter even in here? What does this have to tell us? You know, it would seem that the events of this chapter kind of interrupt this wonderful Joseph story where he's so faithful and wonderful and all these good things, not good things, but he seems to make the most of everything that's going on. But, you know, actually, it, it kind of, it's supposed to be right here. And that's why it's here. This is exactly the spot, chronologically, it should have happened. Now, stick with me here. Joseph was 17 when he was sold by his brothers. 13 years later, he was going to be raised and elevated to the throne. And then if you add seven years of plenty and two years of famine, you've got 22 years. So that's plenty of time for Judah to leave his family, for him to find a Canaanite woman to marry, and to have three sons, to bury two sons and a wife, and then to have two, and then to have two sons by Tamar. He was a busy man, but I think he could have gotten it all done in 22 years. <laughs> but again, my first thought, why? Why do we have to talk about this? And then I was, I was reminded that nothing in the Bible is there by accident. You know, in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says that all scripture is breathed out by God. I'd like to read it like this. Even Genesis 38 was breathed out by God. 
It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training for righteousness. And that the man of God may be complete, equipped with every good work. You know, it's like we're asking God, why? Why is this in there? And he's saying, because I said so. That's why. So it's supposed to be here, and we're supposed to study it, and we're supposed to learn something from it, and take it to teach others as well. Now, one reason I think that Genesis 38 would have been included in the Bible is for historical reasons. You know, for the most part, Genesis is just a recording of the um, birth and the development of the family of Jacob, who was the, 12th, uh, the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's the birth and development of Israel. See, when the Israelites went into Egypt, they were this big family. But four centuries later, 400 years later, when they left there, they were a huge nation. They were a force to be reckoned with. And Judah... This Judah in Genesis 38 is a vital part of that history in Genesis because guess what? His tribe, the tribe of Judah, is the royal tribe from which the Messiah is going to come from. Douglas, can you show us the uh, slide here we have of that a genealogy that we were given not long ago by Deb that shows, goes through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and then all the way down to Jesus. This guy in 38 is the tribe that Jesus came from. Look at Matthew 1, 1 through 3. It's the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And it's going to go on and on and on, all the way to when Jesus is born. You know, another reason I think Genesis chapter 38 is here is because it's going to illustrate the need for Jacob's family to actually leave Canaan. See, I think if they would have settled into this area for very long, I think pretty soon they would have become indistinguishable to everybody around them. They would have been just like part of the culture. They would have, it would have seeped into everything they did. And sadly enough, being slaves in Egypt was probably exactly the best place for them. Because while they were there... The Egyptians wanted absolutely nothing to do with these, these Hebrew slaves. So it would be a place for them to go as slaves in Egypt for God to protect them from outside influence and they would be able to begin to grow their own cultures and hear from their God and not all the other gods around them. Now another very good reason for Genesis 38 to be here is because it provides this stark contrast that we're going to see between this immoral, immoral character of Judah and this virtuous character of Joseph. You know, against this backdrop of immorality, Joseph's faithfulness is gonna shine even brighter. It's gonna be even clearer to us. You know, I first began to study these chapters of Genesis. I began to be reminded of a magazine I used to love as a child. I don't know if anybody recognizes this. Do you... Yeah, it's the highlights. This little jewel was, was first made in June of 1946. And do you know that 70 years later, Deb is still getting it for her grandchildren. People still buy this thing. And when I was in elementary school back in Kansas years ago, say 25 or 45, whatever, who's counting? <laughs> we used to get this thing called the Scholastic Book Order. Oh, do you remember that? Am I taking you back now? I would flip by everything in there to the very back and there would be a place you could order 
the highlights for six months subscription. And I would tear that piece of paper off and I would write all my name and information in and I would take all my change and pour it in the envelope and seal it and take it to my teacher, who I'm sure was very happy to see a pile of change to pay for my highlights. And then I counted the days till this little baby would show up on my mailbox. And as soon as I got my little grubby hands on it, I was doing the picture puzzles, I was doing the crafts, but my favorite were these guys. Remember these guys? Goofus and Gallant. You remember those? These guys. Now this may be, some of you may remember it more like this. Goofus, you know, he was the one that was always kind of messed up. His hair was messy, his clothes were a little messy, and he was always doing things like taking the last apple. And then there was Gallant, and his hair was always slicked down, and he had nice pressed clothes on, and he was sharing his last orange. He was like perfect. And I was pretty sure when I was, when I was growing up that my brothers, my two older brothers, were the goofuses, and I was the Gallant, of course, because my daddy told me so every day. But I learned and have learned over the years that I can morph from, from a gallant to a goofus in 30 seconds flat. And you know, as I studied through Genesis 38, I couldn't help but think of goofus and gallant. You know, Judah constantly making these poor choices. He was our goofus. And Joseph always making these good choices. Choices that honor and bless God. But then I noticed that our biblical version of goofus and gallant, there's this abundance of good news. Not just for the gallant, but there's good news for the goofus as well. And that gave me great hope. So I want you to open your Bibles to Genesis 38, and let's get started. I'm going to start reading the first eight verses of Genesis 38. It happened that at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Shazib when she was born, when, when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur for his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law and, and raise up offspring for your brother. See, as this chapter 38 opens up, the very first, very first verse, we see Judah making some deliberate choices outside the will of God. He's decided to leave his family. If you remember where his family is at this point, his, Joseph is, his dad thinks Joseph is dead that he's been torn apart. So I'm sure his dad needed all the sons around him as much as possible. But he's made this decision to not only separate himself from his family, but it seems that he's also turned his back on God's teachings because he moves into a Canaanite town. And we've heard this story before, right? And none of those stories ended very well. But nonetheless, he deliberately chose to move away from his family into this Canaanite town. And guess what he did there? You've heard this one before too. He decided to take a Canaanite as a wife. He deliberately made the choice to marry a Canaanite woman. And again, history has proven over and over this is not a good idea, but that did not stop him. So with his Canaanite wife, he conceived three sons. He had Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Several years later, Judah made a deliberate choice to find a wife for his firstborn son, Ur, and her name was Tamar. Now, there's very little written about Tamar except where it's widely assumed that she was probably a Canaanite because they had lived there for a while, and so 
most likely she was. Um, but watching jo Judah slowly fade into this Canaanite culture and his practices where he married a Canaanite. He got a Canaanite for his wife. He lived in a Canaanite city. We see that he's slowly, slowly fading into these cultures and, and not looking any different than the rest of the people around him. He was not living as the person that God had chose him to be and not called him to be. And in verse seven we read that even Ur, that sometime after Ur was married to Tamar, he was put to death by God for some unrecorded act of world wickedness. I had no idea what that is. But it must have been pretty bad because apparently God thought it warranted death. And after Ur's death, Ju Judah commands his second-born son, Onan, to marry Tamar so that she could produce a son to, re to receive the inheritance that would be have gone to Ur's first-born son. Now, this was a culture of that time that later would become part of the um, Leverite marriage, part of the Mosaic law. And we find that in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6. Anyway, the Leverite law, marriage law, said that if a man died... Then his brother was to marry the widow and produce an heir for his dead brother. And as it turns out, Onan wasn't quite on board with this in, at, at all. And over the next several verses, we see that he avoided that. And he repeatedly, out of selfishness, disobeyed the custom. His, and his disobedience was severely punished by God, just like his brother. And he was put to death for his wickedness. Now, I think it's fair to say at this time that Judah's choices had not only affected him... I think that his, effect, his, his choices had already led his family into a life filled with strife. Constant bad stuff happening. And, and as they did this, as they all made choices that led them further and further away from God. Now I want to pick back up in verse, uh, verse 11, if you'll follow along. It says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he fear, feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Tamnah to his sheep shearers, and he and his friend Hira and the Adulamite. And when Tamar, Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going to be in Timnah to sheep shear, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Anayim, which is at the road on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. And when, she, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. Wow. Just when you thought this story couldn't get any worse... It does. You know, I remember Misty talking a few weeks ago about Genesis kind of being like a big novel. It was just full of adventure and, and suspense and some romance. Well, I suggest this is like a twisted Harlequin romance. <laughs> this is something. This guy continues to make bad choices. So after Onan is put to death because of his wicked actions, the next thing that should have happened is that Shayla should have been given to Tamar, his thirdborn, as for Tamar as his wife. Now, it doesn't say how old Shayla was at the time, so let's give him the benefit of doubt. He may have been young, but it says right after that that out of fear, he sent Tamar away, so I kind of suspect he might have been old enough to marry. I don't know that for sure. But Judy decides to send Tamar back to live with her father, and he said, bad choice, and he says that it would be only until Shayla was old enough to marry. But a period of time passes. We don't know exactly how long that period of time is, but it's enough time that his wife is, dies and 
Shayla should have been mature enough to marry by this time. And I think Tamar's beginning to realize that she's been duped. And she's waited in vain, and she's waited in vain, and she's waited for him to make the right choices, and he still hasn't done it. So you have to understand that in her culture, to be childless, it was the worst thing that could happen to you. It was a disgrace. And so, and, and the name and the heritage of her own husband was going to be disgraced and wiped out if she remained this childless widow. So she was a desperate person, and she was in a desperate place, and we know what desperate people do. They do desperate things. So she did, and she took some measures into her own hand to address the problem. Now, on a side note, Tamar may have well been influenced by a Hittite inheritance practice as well as the Leverite marriage practice. I think she may have combined these two customs, which we would start to see over time as they lived there for very long. But it was kind of a mixture of the two customs that the custom called for the father-in-law would be called into the Leverite marriage. So if there was not a son left, then the father-in-law was supposed to marry the woman and um, produce a child. But whatever she based her decision on, it seems as though Judah's simple choices made over the years had not only affected him and his family, but now we're starting to see this ripple effect. And his sin is causing others around him and outside of his immediate family to make poor choices as well. His sin had become a stumbling block for others. And to make a very long and very sordid story for that matter short, I'll give you the cliff notes on what happens to this part of the story. Timnah's father is, er, Tamar's father is going to Timnah to join the festivities of the sheep shearing. Now, during that time, sheep shearing and harvest was a huge festival. And during those festivities, there was a lot of promiscuous behavior. It was kind of an anything goes type festival where it was perfectly normal to see the prostitutes by the, near the temple. So Tamar takes this opportunity to disguise herself and waits for Judah to show up. And I think this says a lot about Judah. She knew that he would go for this. So she went there, she disguised herself, and like clockwork, guess what? He showed up and proved Tamar's opinion of his character spot on, and he initiates the sin. Then Tamar demands some form of pledge and to ensure the compensation for her services, and that payment was to be returned to her in the form of a goat. Now, she's wanting some collateral because she wants to make sure she actually gets payment, so she asks for his signet, his cord, and his uh, staff. Now, a signet would have been like a cylinder that he wore around his neck on a cord, and he would have used it to endorse legal documents. So it's probably better, best described like a, uh, maybe some type of a seal that he would have used to endorse papers with. And so it would be very unique to Judah, as well as a staff, because it was a custom of the time that the staff would be um, unique to each person. Now, Judah sent his friend back with the payment, but of course he wasn't able to find her because she wasn't a regular prostitute at the temple. And so um, she was only there to, to, uh, to trap Judah. And she did it. It ended up working out. When Judah was nowhere to be found, Judah's friend returned and Judah chooses to drop this issue out of embarrassment. And I'm pretty sure he thinks, I dodged that bullet. But his relief was only going to be short-lived. If we skip down to verse 24 and 38, it says, About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. 
Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law by the man, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since, that, since I did not give her my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. I mean, you can almost hear the soap opera music, right? Dun, 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 dun. You know, they just stand there waiting. <laughs> Tamar not only shows up, she shows up three months pregnant and presents the cord and the signet and the staff as proof that Judah is in fact the father. I bet he didn't see this coming at all. <laughs> now, among few commentaries I was able to find on this chapter, most agree that this was probably a major turning point in Judah's life. <laughs> well, I would hope so. <laughs> That's all they gave me this <laughs> over these last few weeks. When confronted with his own hypocrisy, Judah acknowledged his own sinful behavior. He not only acknowledged his, his sin, but he acknowledged that his sin had in fact caused Tamar to sin as well. And most commentaries agree that this acknowledgement of his sin led to repentance. Because later on, if we go to Genesis 44, we see, we're going to see that Judah is actually taking a leadership role among his brothers when he has to go back to Joseph to plead for mercy. Follow along, I'm going to read the last few verses of 38. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zara. The firstborn son of Tamar, named Perez, born of a sinful act of prostitution, nevertheless was born into the line, into the lineage of Christ. It's as ugly as this story may be, it should give all of us great hope. See, Judah was a biblical goofus, not just once, not just twice, but over and over for many, many years. He made poor, poor decisions. And his sin had brought him down this dark road that led him right to the, foot of, to the foot of God. And he repented. And through his grace, God forgave Judah and blessed him by using him in a mighty and powerful way. The good news for Judah is that his sin did not disqualify him from being used by God to accomplish his sovereign plan. Fortunately, God's grace overrides man's sin, and he can turn even human failures into his glory. God was hard at work in Judah's life. He was preparing him to take this leadership role that he would eventually have to assume for this family, and he was also preparing him to be the one that the line, to be in the line that his son Jesus would come through. Now, I want to put this chapter behind us, and we're going to move on to chapter 39. I think you can officially say that you have spent more time than most biblical scholars have on this. So I think you could probably put that on your, hang it up on your wall because we were brave enough and courageous enough to dive into that. Let's start out in Genesis 39, 1 through 6, if you follow along. Now Joseph, 
had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard of an Egyptian, had brought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had had made him overseer in his house over, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now, I'm not sure if when you started studying this, you actually read all three of these chapters, one right after the other, or if you broke them down. But I would bet if you did, you felt like I did when you made that transition from 38 to 39. You felt like you were climbing out of this dark, creepy, icky place that there was just not enough brain bleach to, to fix what you had bred. And you'd stepped out in this sunny day. There were beautiful, beautiful clouds and the sky was blue and you could hear the birds chirping and the flowers are blooming. You know, Deb said it made her think like she was walking down Bourbon Street in New Orleans and into a beautiful church. But however you have it in your brain and your mind, I'm sure you can agree to me, agree with me that if God was looking to make these two chapters complete opposites, he definitely hit a home run. See, he gave us a story of the goofus that we could not miss so that we could not miss the greatness of this gallant who's going to follow in these next two chapters. And I would like to suggest that the biggest difference in these two chapters is seen in the first eight words of verse one. It says, now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt. And if you glance back to 38, the first nine verses, it says it happened at that time that Judah went down. See, Judah had made a deliberate choice on his own to leave and continue to make deliberately bad choices outside the will of God, and we know how that worked out for him. Joseph, on the other hand, he was drugged into a difficult situation where he had zero control. He had been stripped and thrown into a pit by his brothers. They sold him into slavery and then told his father that he had been shredded and ripped up by wild animals and that he was dead. But Joseph deliberately chose to make the most of his difficult circumstances. He did not want to waste one minute of his time. Not even, and it was not just a few days, ladies. This went on for years and years. Joseph chose to live within the will of God, no matter what his circumstances were. It would have been so easy to just fall into despair and think, has God forgotten, to, forgotten me? But Joseph clung firmly to the conviction that God was with him. And, and the Lord, it says the Lord over and over, it says the Lord blessed him greatly. He had a wonderful reputation. He was well respected by those around him, even to the point that they knew that his success was from God. And that tells me that he turned all, he glorified God's name and he turned all that success not to himself, he gave it to God. He was pointing others to God, all those around him. You know, when Joseph was still at home in the Hebron with his brothers, they considered him kind of a dreamer, kind of a troublemaker. He was daddy's favorite. But you know, in Egypt, he was a source of blessing to all those around him. God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 that his descendants would bring blessing to other nations. And that's exactly what Joseph was doing in Egypt. Joseph had every excuse in the book to be down, to be sad, to be bitter. 
and in despair. And I'm quite sure he would much rather have been at home in the safety of his, of his home and in the comfort of his home. But he didn't waste his time there. You know, God's, if he had stayed back with his doting father, who made no attempt to hide his favoritism for Joseph, Joseph may have never developed the character traits he needed that he was gonna learn by being under someone else's authority and learning how to obey orders. God was, God's way of teaching is often so different than our way. He tests his servants before he actually promotes them. Look at Matthew 25, 21 in your verse sheet. Jesus is telling a parable of the talents. And he's given, it's, there's a master and a servant and three servants. And the master has given each servant a different number of talents. And the servant that was given five talents invested it wisely and doubled his money. And this is what his master told him. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. See, before he allows us sometimes to exercise authority in his sovereign plan, he often puts us in circumstances, just like Joseph, that require us to be under authority and to learn how to take orders and to obey orders. I want to continue reading. I'm going to read um, the second part of 6 through 12. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in this house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this wickedness, great wickedness, and sin against God? And she spoke to Joseph day after day, and he would not listen to her he told, or to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work, none of the men of the house were there in the house. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. You know, the last part of six kind of sets the stage for what's about to happen. Joseph would have been about 18 or 19 years old at that time. He was a diligent worker. He was a very well-respected man of God. And apparently, as it says, he was a little easy on the eye. He was a bit of a hottie. And, and the description is he, he was kind of the complete package. And I think Potiphar's wife noticed that. And she began to desperately try to seduce Joseph, and Joseph saw it for exactly what it was. Not just that he was dishonoring his earthly master, but Joseph saw it as a sin against God. And Joseph repeatedly resisted the temptation to sin against God. He made the choice over and over again to keep his jeans in his jeans. That's what I tell my kids. <laughs> I've heard that a couple times. But not just once. He did it over and over and over. And he was a man, just like all the other men there, and he was very good looking. But she managed to keep his robe after he fled. And you know, Joseph may have ended up losing his garments, but he managed to keep his character and his reputation completely intact. So part of his wife then falsely reports to her husband that Joseph has assaulted her, and he's thrown, he has him thrown into prison. Now, I want to keep reading. I want to start at verse 19. Let's see how the prison life worked out for him. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoner was confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison 
put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Here he is again, unjustly imprisoned. Unfair circumstances. And again, it's the Lord who makes all the difference in his life. No matter where Joseph was, whether he was this well-respected steward in Potiphar's house or he was falsely accused criminal in Potiphar's prison, it says the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success. Joseph was again put in a position where he was going to have to learn to wait on the Lord. It would have been so easy for Joseph to fall into despair, believing that God had abandoned him or been unfaithful, but not Joseph. He never lost hope because he trusted that God was going to fulfill those prophecies that he had given him in those youthful dreams he had had. And he again made the most of his circumstances and soon placed in charge of everything. It says anything that happened, he was the one that did it. Now follow along. I'm going to read the the first eight verses of chapter 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord and the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his officers, the two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put him in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. He asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody with his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell uh, tell them to me. So we kind of see Joseph's servant heart spring into action here. I don't think he could have known that these guys were downcast if he hadn't spent some time with them and actually took the time to to notice that they were different than the day before. Instead of being consumed by his own woes, he's quick to show compassion for the other person's suffering, even if that suffering didn't compare anything to his. You know, he could have easily said, do you think you got problems? Listen to this. This is the second time I've been put in prison. But he didn't. He shows genuine concern for the fellow prisoners. And, he want, and, and wanting to remove their sorrows, he interprets their dreams. So these two guys share their dreams with Joseph. And, and Joseph, in his humility, is quick to say that these don't come from him. They come from God, that he's only a mediator. And so for the sake of time, I'm going to tell you, we're going to just go over these really quickly. The cupbearer's dream was that there was a vine with three branches. And it it flowered, and then there were grapes, and he took those grapes, and he pressed them into the cup, Pharaoh's cup, and then he handed the cup to Pharaoh. And Joseph interpreted that dream as meaning that in three days, he would be restored, his head would be lifted up, and he would be restored to his former position as cupbearer to Pharaoh. Now, the baker thought, wow, this just sounds like a good, this is working, I like that, I think it's pretty positive, I think I'm going to share my dream, but before Joseph agrees to interpret it, he asked the cupbearer, which I thought was interesting, he asked him, why you didn't ask the baker? I guess he maybe knew <laughs> something about the baker's dream after this. He was going to know that baker wasn't going to be around. But he asked the cupbearer to, um, to remember him and get me out of here. You know, when you get out of here, 
help me get out. So what happens is the baker has this dream where he has three cake baskets on his head and he's carrying it and the, the birds are eating out of the top basket. So that was interpreted by Joseph as that in three days, his head would not be lifted off, up, it would be lifted off and he was gonna be hung somewhere in a tree and he was gonna be dead. So he didn't like his quite as much but follow along, let's see what happens in chapter 20, or in verse 20. It says, on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So what happened? Just like Joseph said it was gonna happen. I think verse 23 is the saddest verse out of this whole thing. Probably because I love a happy, sappy ending to any story. I, it's probably the reason I don't like Gone with the Wind and I love Hallmark, Hallmark movies. <laughs> I like very predictable where I know bad is gonna win or lose and good is gonna win and it's just, it's perfect. And then I really don't like when I get to the end of a book and it says to be continued. That's even worse to me. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. See, Joseph is not only not remembered, he is completely forgotten by the cupbearer. What a crushing blow this had to be to Joseph. And if you peek ahead to the first chapter or first verse of chapter 41, you're gonna see that he's gonna be there two more long and probably very lonely years before he actually gets out of the prison. But just like there was good news for Goofus, there's good news for Gallant as well. See, as Joseph trusted and obeyed God, even in the midst of his difficult circumstances, God poured out his blessings, his rich blessings into Joseph's life. I think it's so important for us to point out that Joseph was obedient and he was still in some very difficult circumstances. Just because he was obedient didn't mean he had a struggle-free life. You know, that may be the hardest thing for me to, to understand. I totally get it when I've been disobedient. I should be, there should be punishment, there should be consequences. But it's really hard for me when I know that I'm in God's will and I know I'm being obedient and I have to struggle. You know, unlike Joseph, I'm sure I don't handle it with humility and faithfulness all the time. I'm pretty sure I've wasted a whole bunch of good suffering time when I could have been learning something instead of fighting against God's will. And I dare say that all of us have been goofuses as well as gallants, but I've been goofuses more in my life than a gallant, I'm sure. And I know just, just this morning, I'm sure I was. I've been a goofus in little things, I've been a goofus in big things. But God in his perfect grace has continued over and over to pursue me, and he even blesses me by using me to accomplish his great plans. And when I have been a gallant, oftentimes I've been quickly met with opposition and difficult circumstances, and it's left me wondering, really? Is this how you're gonna treat me? And I'm frequently left thinking, Am I, did I really hear him right? Maybe I misunderstood what, if I'm in God's will, this should be easy. See, we're called to be faithful in all circumstances, just like Joseph. You know, I read something that said that for Joseph, knowing God and his character was enough for him to be loyal in duty, strong in temptation, and faithful in unfair circumstances. Just knowing God and knowing God's character is all he needed 
What a great life to imitate. You know, there's not only good news for Judah and Joseph, there's also good news for all of us as well. Our first piece of good news is that God can use even our failures for his glory. If we recognize and acknowledge our sin, God is so faithful to forgive us. And our past sins, just like it didn't for Judah, those past sins don't disqualify us from being used by God. And we see that with Judah as he eventually becomes the leader of his family in Genesis 44. And for Joseph, in Genesis 50, 20, when Joseph is speaking to his brothers, the very brothers that threw him in the pit, he says this to them. As for you, you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. See, Joseph understood this truth, that even though many times it felt like or looked like his life was falling apart, Joseph knew that in God's plan, his life was actually falling into place. And that applies to us as well. See, Paul's letter to uh, the Romans, chapter 8, 28, he says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And that second piece of good news for us is this, that God is with us in the midst of all of our circumstances. See, in both the life of Judah and the life of Joseph, God was hard at work. He's refining these men, preparing them for the works that he had prepared for them way before the beginning of the world. Just like he's done for us. Look at Joshua 1.9 in your verse sheet. God is speaking to Joshua. He's about to go into battle and he says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And our third piece of good news is that the Lord is faithful to bless us when we're obedient. Luke eleven twenty eight 28 says this, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. It may seem like it at the time, it may not seem like it at the time, because see, God's purposes are so beyond the immediate moment. The Lord had placed Joseph in this situation in which he was, had no control, but with the Lord's help, there was one thing he could control, and that is how he was gonna respond to these circumstances. Our submission to God's will allows our Heavenly Father to pour out his richest blessings into our lives. And lastly, ladies, we can trust God with all our circumstances. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Psalms 18.30 says this, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true and he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And Psalms 37.5 may be my absolute favorite new verse. Two reasons. One, I like what it says, but two, it's really short and I can memorize it. It says, commit your way to the Lord, trust him, and he will act. It doesn't say he might act, it says he will act. Whether our circumstances are brought on by our own bad choices or we're unfairly thrown into difficult circumstances, remember this one thing, ladies. Our heavenly father is the God of the universe. He loves you more than anything in the world. And he is mighty to save. All he wants for us is to cry out to him. When we call out to him, it's like music to his ears. And he's willing and he's more than ready and more than able to act. And he'll replace our miseries with his beauty, often right in the middle of our struggles. Now, I think Joseph's picture should be right next to Hebrews 11.1 1 in the Bible. It says, now faith is the assurance of things, things hoped for for the conviction of things not seen. Because I think his life was exactly that verse. 
And when we go back to the question, why would we even study Genesis 38? Or I've even had people ask me, why would you study Genesis? It's just a bunch of stories. Here's my answer to that. The patriarchs in Genesis remind all of us of God's sovereignty and grace. And some of them were deliberately disobedient, while others suffered tremendous injustice, even when being obedient. And yet, the Lord used each of them to accomplish his great purposes. And that gives me great hope. And I pray with all my heart that it gives you great hope as well. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even the hard stuff to read is filled with rich nuggets of truth. Lord, I pray that we don't leave here the same, that we find something in your word that we can apply to our lives. And and you just teach us and love us and guide us as we do that. In Christ's name I pray this, amen.